This episode of Crosscut Talks is supported by Alaska Airlines. Hey, welcome to Crosscut Talks. I'm Mark Bumgarten, the managing editor at Crosscut. And today we're talking about what it takes to make change in this country. It seems appropriate that the answer to that question, what does it take, is itself changing. Our guest, Congresswoman Pramila Jaipal, is someone who presses for political change within the halls of government. She's a committed progressive, chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, actually. But she also represents a sea change in the world of activism. You'll hear her talk about it in this conversation, which was recorded at this year's Crosscut Festival. Representative Jayapal started pressing for change as an organizer at the turn of the millennium, a time when activists were largely set apart from government, applying pressure from the outside. Now she's at the forefront of a new approach to activism for the left, in which the pressure is applied from inside, and where much of that pressure is coming from women of color. Now, this isn't a conversation about policy, or even really about parliamentary tactics, though there is a bit of that here. This is really a conversation about mindset, about the thinking required to turn a desire for societal change into actual change. The representative here is pulling a lot from her book, which came out last year. It's called Use the Power You Have. But the interviewer, Crystal Paul of the Seattle Times, pushes Jayapal beyond those pages and does a really nice job of eliciting some revealing answers. There's a lot to learn from Jayapal here, no matter your politics. One note on timing, the Crosscut Festival took place in early May, prior to the Senate vote that essentially killed the bill that would have created a commission to investigate the events of January 6th, which Jayapal speaks about here. This conversation from the Crosscut Festival is sponsored by Bedrooms and More, who would like us to share this message. Bedrooms and More is a family business in Wallingford with the mission of saving the world one home at a time. They design and build mattresses in Seattle with zippered covers, modular construction, and replaceable components to reduce mattresses entering the waste stream. Learn more at bedroomsandmore.com. All right, I hope you enjoy the conversation. If you have any feedback, please send it to talks at crosscut.com. Okay. On with the show. So the last time we spoke uh, was in January, and a lot has happened since then. So I just wanted to check in and see how you're doing. (laughs) Start us off. Well, thank you. I am doing okay. It feels like it's been a year already, um, (laughs) and we're only four months into it. But um, there's a lot of good that is happening, and so I'm trying to focus on all those wonderful things. That's great, that's great. Um, so we're here today to talk about the politics of change and uh, your journey into politics started with activism. So I was hoping that we could start off by just talking a little bit about your decision to move from activism into politics. Yeah, I never thought I would be a politician. I never <laughs> wanted to run for office to be totally frank. Um, people know me in Washington State from having started One America, now called One America, then called Hate Free Zone. And um, that was, you know, started in the wake of 9-11, in the wake of all these hate crimes against Arab Americans, Muslim Americans, South Asian Americans, 
Mexican Americans. And it ended up being the largest immigrant advocacy organization in the state. And I was so proud to lead it through all of that for 12 years. Um, you know, in, in pushing for change and the kind of change that is so important to immigrant communities, to communities of color, but more broadly to working families, pushing for a $15 minimum wage, pushing for marriage equality, um, and so many other issues, I realized that we just didn't have enough people of color, um, enough women in places of policy making. And so we weren't at the decision making table. And it caused me to re-examine my whole theory of change that only the outside can make a difference. And I realized that my new theory of change was that I wanted to test out was, what if we were to use elected office as an organizing platform? And for an organizer like myself, that was a very appealing way to look at politics, that we needed to have more people that were representative of our communities, that could bring those issues to the tables where decisions are made, and could organize on the inside as well as the outside. And so I um, ran for office first in the state Senate, where I became the only woman of color at the time in the state Senate. It's hard to imagine that. <laughs> um, but that was the case. And then later, uh, two years later, ran for Congress and became the first person of color that Democrats in Washington state have ever sent to Congress and the first South Asian American woman to serve in the United States House of Representatives. And I will just tell you, Crystal, I am convinced that we need organizers everywhere. We need them on the outside, we need them on the inside, and we need to be really coordinating. And so that's what I've been focused on here in Congress. Of course, now I have a thousand follow-up questions, um, <laughs> but the first one I'll say is, you know, that's that's a lot of firsts, um, and I think we have a lot of students and young professionals in the audience who are considering a career in activism or politics in some in some way involved in creating change. Um, how would you advise them to make the choice on on where to do their organizing? Well, I think that in terms of where, um, in terms of issues, I think our young people today are so much better than generations past in terms of intersectional thinking, right? Mm -hmm. So there is such an intersectional lens to the work around gender, class, um, and racial justice. And it, so I think that in some ways it makes it harder sometimes for somebody to pick, where do I go to start the work? But the good news is, there's a lot more of that intersectional work happening no matter where you go. So when you're thinking about change, I tell people to write down a little notebook. When do you feel your heart jump because you're working on something that really matters, you know, and that really has you excited? And if you write down those times, you will start to see not only the issues that you're most interested in, but also what kind of thing is it? There are people who love to do behind the scenes organizing. That's a particular kind of person. There are people who wanna be out front and leading on something. That's a particular kind of person. There are people who wanna do research. That's a particular kind of person. All of these things are part of creating change. So the more you can get in touch with what you want, what you feel your skills are, and also where you find joy, the more you will be able to identify what's the right place for you to get plugged in. And if none of that works, then I say, go try five things and <laughs> just, just go out there and randomly pick five things that seem kind of interesting to you and see if they work. Because at the end of the day, you know, none of these decisions are permanent. You can always move on. You can always change your mind. But 
get educated about what's what the options are. So uh, I, I've been reading your book, um, and in it, you talk a little bit about the difficulties you had running up against your parents and their expectations for you as a first-generation immigrant, um, and your decision to choose activism. Um, you know, as people are considering which path to take, uh, what advice do you have for, for young people trying to convince their parents to get on board? <laughs> yeah, I really detail that in my book because I came to the United States when I was 16 years old by myself. My parents took every last penny that they had, 5,000 bucks, and they used it to send me here by myself, which is the ultimate sacrifice. And so there's a lot of expectations that many of us have from our parents or from the outside world or from ourselves um, and whatever has been acculturated into us. And um, for my dad, it was that I was supposed to be a doctor, a lawyer, or a business person. You know, somebody that was going to earn a lot of money and was going to be able to take care of myself in a way that he was not able to, you know, he, he was able to take care of himself, but he wanted me to have more. And so it was very difficult for him when I told him my second year of college that I was going to be an English literature major instead of an economics major. And I used my one phone call home that I had every year to tell him that. And I had to hold the phone away from my ear as he you know, yelled at me and said, <laughs> I didn't send you to the United States to learn how to speak English. You already know how to speak English. Um, so I'm sure that there are a lot of young people who deal with that in some form. And what I would just say is start to have faith in yourself. You know, start to have faith in yourself. Make the smart argument to your parents. I made it to my dad that I would get the same job with an English degree that I would have gotten with an economics degree, which is what led me to investment banking for a couple of years and <laughs> made me realize so completely that I did not want to do that. And so that was all part of my transition. And I think that Sometimes our parents expect of us and we expect of ourselves that we're going to have a linear progression, you know, that from the time we're born, essentially, to the time that we become successful in whatever realm we're supposed to be successful in, that it's all going to progress in a linear way. And I am living proof of the idea that life is not linear and you can learn something from every opportunity you have, even the ones you don't like. You learn just as much from the things you don't like as from the things you like. And if we take each of those learnings and kind of think about it as the next step, we can make that argument to our parents, to ourselves, to anybody else that has expectations of us that really the biggest skill is to trust ourselves and to continue on a path that we feel driven towards. Well, speaking of things we don't like, um, I can't imagine that it is easy to be the only or the first. And, and you just rattled off a bunch of firsts um, that you've been in, in your career. Uh, you said that you made that, that choice consciously, that you decided that there needed to be more people of color in these roles. How does one make that choice to be the only, to be the first? And what sort of challenges did you face being in a, in a minority um, in a lot of the rooms that you were doing work in? You know, I don't think I ever made a conscious choice to be the first, but I think I made a conscious choice that there needed to be more of me. And it just so happened, you know, more people like me. And it just so happened that in many cases, that was because there hadn't been any before me. One of the things I'm proudest of, though, is that 
I know that after I ran, a whole host of um, South Asian American women ran in our state and a whole bunch of people of color and immigrants ran in our state. And so our state legislature now in the state Senate, there are many women of color there now, not enough still. And in the state legislature, there are many. And I will tell you, I think that's a big part of the reason why the state legislature just wrapped up one of its most productive and progressive sessions because people of color were at the table advocating for equity. So I think when you're deciding what you want to do, the trick is to think clearly about why you want to do what you want to do. For me, it's not about having a title. I mean, I'm thrilled that I have the title of Congresswoman, but it's only important to me if it gives me a platform and an opportunity to advance the things I care deeply about. And the minute it stops being that is the moment that I will stop being a member of Congress because I don't want to do it. There's a lot involved in this job, and it's only good if I'm moving that moral arc of the universe more quickly towards justice. So think about what it is you want to do and why. And it's not about who you want to be in terms of a title. It's about what you want to do. The second thing is, if you are then running for something or you know ad, or trying to get a position where you are the first or maybe not the first but one of very few i think again i feel like i'm repeating myself because so many of the answers to your questions have been trust yourself you know you are going to go into an environment where people will try to diminish you people will try to speak over you um, or you just will be ignored in different ways and your job is to remember that when people do that, it's largely because of their problem. They're intimidated by you. They have their own issues that they're going to have to deal with. But none of those you need to accept. You don't need to accept any of those. You can still be who you are and you can advocate for the things that you care about and the reality is because we're often the first or one of few, we are far more prepared than anybody else. We do way more work to get ourselves prepared because we're never going to be in that situation where somebody says you got that wrong or you didn't do that right or whatever. It's a lot of pressure, I'll admit, that we put on ourselves, but that's part of what happens. Yeah, we definitely have the dictum in my community of, um, you know, work twice as hard, right? That's right. That's right. <laughs> um, so I, I want to pinpoint something that you just said about moving the arc more quickly towards justice. Um, there seems to be a bit of uh, the sense of opposition between activists and politicians. Um, and, you know, the, the language of activism tends to be certain, something about urgency and demand versus politics tends to be about compromise. Uh, how are you bridging those those two sides and, and how do you communicate across those two different languages? Yeah, the, the more of us we have on the inside, the smaller that gap gets, but it is always going to be there to some extent because what we really need is to constantly be pushing the limits of what's seen as possible. I mean, I consider my my uh, being an activist on the inside. I'm still an activist. I'm just on the inside um, with Congress. And so for us as progressives, as people that are pushing for bold change, 
if politics is the art of the possible, which is sort of what you're getting at with the, with the issue of compromise, then our job as activists, wherever we sit, is to push the boundaries of what is seen as possible. Possibility is only limited by what you see or believe. It's not limited by actual factors on the ground necessarily. And so I think that a lot of what we do is we're pushing, pushing, pushing on the outside and the inside. If you get to a place where you have to, quote, compromise, um, to me, compromise is not about some people are here, you know, um, extreme Republicans believe in white supremacy. And here we don't believe in white supremacy. And therefore, you cut the difference. And we're only going to believe in white supremacy for 50 percent of the people. No, that's not that's not compromise. Right. <laughs> It's not just dividing the difference in half. It's about principled compromise. So where is the principle? It's the same thing on caging kids. You know, if if some Republicans are saying, well, we need to cage, you know, 100,000 kids and some are saying don't cage any, we don't settle and say 50,000 kids caged is okay. So I think really thinking about what are the principles and if we are moving forward, you push for the most you can get, if we are moving forward and we're not moving another group backwards, that is part of what a principled compromise might entail. But we are always limited in politics by what we can get done. And so it is a challenge. That gap will always be there. I'm not sure it's a bad thing because when I was pushing for a $15 minimum wage along with the fast food workers almost a decade ago, people told me I was crazy. Well, now we're going to pass the $15. We've already passed it in the House, and we're working to get it through in the Senate. Um, you can kind of go through issue after issue, community college. I introduced free community college in the Washington State Senate in 2016. Now I'm introducing a bill for free education overall to and for your colleges. We move on. Progressives are the first to the best and most just idea, and then everyone else has to try and keep up with us. So it sounds like you're speaking sort of specifically about a evolution, uh, an even slow evolution of change. Um, and, you know, this talk is about the politics of change, but I, I also want to talk a little bit about staying power. Uh, so, you know, we are just coming from four years of a Republican president and a Republican majority. And now we have a Democratic president and a Democratic majority. Um, and, you know, the last president undid a lot of things that the president before him did and, 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 and the Congress before them did. And the same thing is happening now. So when you are creating, when you're trying to create change through policy, is there any hope that those changes will last when they can be so easily undone? And how do you, how do you cope with that as an activist, as a politician? How do you push back against things kind of being undone regularly? Well, legislative changes are quite hard to undo, um, particularly legislation that gives things to people that they desperately need. You know, so you think about Medicare or Social Security, two of the most enduring programs, two of the most popular programs, because they provide real benefit to people. Um, I think that uh, legislative changes that are bad are also very difficult to undo. And so I think about welfare reform under President Bill Clinton. Um, I thought that was a terrible policy, and I think it's been very hard to undo pieces of that, including the framework 
of work requirements or criminalization of immigrants or a number of things that were part of that welfare reform bill. And so it's only with the executive orders that things get undone quickly because then any president can undo it, which is why legislation is so important um, for the right things. And what I would say now with this president, because of the moment that was created in part by the movement for black lives, by the movement for gun reform. I mean, these are a lot of things that young people across this country were leading on. Um, Because of that, combined with the tragedies and the horrors of COVID-19, and then, of course, with, um, you know, all of the elements that came to bear, the murder of George Floyd, the unemployment, the health pandemic, 500,000 plus people dying in our country, food lines stretching around the corners. All of that has contributed to this president being the boldest president we've ever seen, which many of us who didn't support this president um, in the Democratic primary would not have expected. But we should take credit for that. And we should hang on to it without foregoing the the reality that things still haven't changed for Black people in America. Things still haven't changed for poor people in America. We have to do, we have to deliver now. But even the frame that Joe Biden is putting forward is completely different than any other president before. And it is the progressive movement's frame for everything from tax reform to, you know, investing in um in cutting poverty through long-term staying power things like a child tax credit um, or many of the other things that we're pushing. So, so many of the things that you just referenced are are tragic Uh, and your activism career also came out of tragedy. Uh, I'm curious if over the past 20 years of your career, you've noticed a trend in that radical change follows great tragedy. Yes. Unfortunately, it is a key part of organizing. You know, um, what organizing for change is about is you build a movement and you help create a tipping point. But often that tipping point is a moment of tragedy. And we are horrified by it as organizers. And we take the opportunity that it requires of us, that it presents to us, but requires of us to make a change in that moment. And so the infrastructure was building with the Black Lives Matter movement over, uh, you know, over years. Um, the infrastructure, $15 minimum wage building over years, immigration reform, we still haven't reached that tipping point where we've gotten any kind of good reform through. But so much of how an organizer operates is to build, 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 and then look for the tipping point. And usually it's a moment of tragedy. I hate to say that, but I remember when we would have, um, you know, the most terrible things happen and people would come together in that moment with a real focus on what needed to be done and a renewed sense of urgency that allowed us to do it. Uh, so that brings me to something that I would kind of like to talk about, but if you feel uncomfortable anytime, please feel free to stop. Um, we last spoke a, a day before uh, the events of January 6th, the insurrection at the Capitol. Um, and I know that you were in the building at the time. Have you felt that your work has changed, how you understand voters, how you understand your colleagues across the aisle? Have, 
do you feel that any of that has changed since that day? Yes, completely. Um, I was trapped in the gallery uh, along with several of my colleagues. Um, many of us that were people of color were watching as Confederate flags were being raised. You know, some of our white colleagues were being told to take off their member pin. This is a member pin that identifies us as a member by uh, for Capitol Police. And they were taking off their pins so that the um, rioters, the insurrectionists wouldn't see them as members and attack them. For many of us folks of color, we kept our member pins on because it was the it was the worst of two evils. Do we get recognized by the by the insurrectionists who attack us, or do we not get recognized because we're people of color by Capitol Police who are trying to identify members to protect? And so there was so much that was happening in that moment where I literally thought I could die. And there was so much happening, not just on a personal level, but on a political level with the big lie that is continuing to be perpetrated by many of our colleagues and the former president. And it's been very difficult to emerge from all of those places because we haven't had any accountability yet. You know, we had the impeachment trial of, of Donald Trump. That impeachment trial got more bipartisan votes for impeachment than any impeachment trial in the history of our country, but it wasn't quite enough to actually impeach the president, uh, to, to, excuse me, to convict the president. And um, that was a, a real problem because he's continued to do the same thing that he's been doing. With our colleagues, it's been a real problem because so many of them in fealty to the former president are refusing to even admit that there was an insurrection, that the president was responsible for it, or that it hurt our democracy, that this was actually a fair and a free election. Some of them question whether Joe Biden is the legitimate president. So it makes it extremely difficult for us to work in a bipartisan way with our colleagues who aren't even recognizing that democracy in the election um, was fair. So it has been very difficult on a personal level, just the trauma of the day for many of us and on a kind of broader um, national level because democracy is really at stake. And anybody who watched what happened on January 6th saw how darn close we were to losing our democracy. We'll be back with more after this message. Ready to take your travels to the next level? Alaska Airlines is committed to providing a higher standard of safety and cleanliness throughout your journey. From mask requirements and touch-free options to HEPA filters on board and everything in between. Plus, their award-winning loyalty program, Mileage Plan, makes it easy to earn and redeem miles wherever you go including destinations worldwide, thanks to their One World Alliance membership. If you're ready to land a low fare, next level care, and the best experience in the air, book now at alaskaair.com. So I, I wanna throw in here one of our audience questions. So someone asked, what are some examples of ineffective strategies or tactics to avoid so I don't waste my time? And I think they're referring in, uh, as, as activists. <laughs> yeah, it's a great question, but a hard question to answer because every effective strategy or ineffective strategy depends on the campaign. 
right? So depending on what you're trying to get and who you're trying to target, that's how you should decide what your strategies are. So ineffective strategies could be if you're only targeting people who are already on board. Um, that may be uh, you know, important in other contexts to build momentum. But if you're organizing a whole bunch of stuff and it's around somebody that's already on board because they happen to be closest to you, that may not be that effective. Now, there may be other reasons to do that. But I'm always telling people, you know, that come to see me, I'm with you. I'm already signed on or it's my bill or I've and I love hearing from people. But can you organize people in other states? Do you have family members in other states that you might want to um, get them on board because I think matching the strategy to the target to the result is the arc of a campaign for change. So um, kind of a roundabout way to answer that, but think about your think about your goal, think about your target to reach that goal, and then think about your strategy. Maybe I'll just add one more thing. In my book, I detail um, something called a power map which I think is a really important organizing tool and too many organizers um, don't know about it. So I just wanna push it out there, which is um, when I got to the state Senate, I created a power map of all the state senators. There were only 50, so it wasn't that hard. Um, and in that power map, it was essentially a profile of every senator, Republican and Democrat, what they were moved by, what issues they focused on, what church or synagogue or mosque or whatever they went to, um, who they were influenced by, who their top donors were. It was really sort of like, what are all the leverage points for this person? Um, where did their kids go to school? Was there a PTA association that their wife or husband were a part of? Um, and that really was a great way to identify what the points of leverage were with any particular senator that I wanted to work with. So um, there are tools like that that are really great organizing tools. And I go through some of them in my book, but organizing is a skill. It isn't just an intention, it is actually a skill. And um, there is a lot to learn. And so I hope that people who want to organize, run for office, any of those things, really get engaged in making something happen at the ground level first, even before you run for office, because it will help you to understand what moves people and how do you create change, where whatever the venue is. So just under the wire here, uh, what advice do you have for budding activists and politicians coming of age in this very divided political uh, landscape? Uh, believe in yourself. You heard that from me many times. That is really important. Um, get to know your opposition. I go on Fox News quite a bit, or I used to. I haven't in a while. But, you know, I think that was important to me, being able to make the arguments about what I was arguing for to people who didn't agree with me. And I think we surround ourselves too much with people who agree with us. So get to know your opposition. Um, and then develop your skills. I think those are those are kind of three good ones for everybody to um, to to go out there and be able to do something that really is meaningful for you and for the world. And remember, um, it doesn't take more than a single person sometimes often to create the kind of change we want to see. So we all have the power. 
We just need to use the power we have, which of course is the title of my book, but (laughs) (laughs) use the power we have. And title. Well, thank you so much for being here. Uh, This was a great conversation and I hope everyone out there in internet land got some good stuff out of it. Um, Thank you again, Congresswoman. Thank you, Crystal, and thank you, Kraska. And that's it for this week's episode. Thanks to Representative Jayapal for the talk, and thanks also to the folks in the audience who asked questions. If you'd like to be one of those audience members for a future CrossCut event, go to crosscut.com events. This episode of CrossCut Talks was engineered by Chi Lee. The live recording was engineered by Rusty Bacall and Victoria Ralph, and the event was produced by Jake Newman and Andrea O'Meara. Anne Krisnovich and Mo Cloud managed our audience engagement. If you'd like to subscribe to CrossCut Talks, you can do just that on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit CrossCut.com. And if you would like to support the work that we do at CrossCut, whether it's the live events we host every month or the in-depth news that we deliver every day, go to CrossCut.com donate. CrossCut Talks is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Mark Baumgarten. We'll be back soon with another conversation.